0: doing church together is exciting, even though we have different pieces of family news every week. We celebrate life, but also we celebrate death, don't we? It's kind of those two things together in one week just shows how much of a community we are together, how much Jesus knitted us together. Um, This morning we're going to be continuing our series in Acts, and if you have your Bibles, the Bibles, the church Bibles here, you'll find uh, we're going to be from Acts 3 and 4 on pages 1,000 and 94 and um in the the first part of this series before the summer break we're going to be looking at the first six chapters which are concerned with the mission of the apostles in Jerusalem. How the early church saw many believers added to them. How the Holy Spirit came on them at Pentecost. And incredible numbers were there. And they, they lived out the gospel even in the face of opposition. And they gave everything they had to the mission of Christ. When we come back after our summer break, we'll watch how the gospel explodes out of Jerusalem. It goes to Judea, to Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth making the transition from a message for the Jews to a message for all peoples, of all nations, of all tribes, in all corners of the earth. And as a, an advanced church, we've spent a long time over the last three or four years trusting in the things we see in Acts. And I know that personally it's had a profound impact on my life. They, they did Acts in 30 years and they saw the gospel go to all the corners of the earth and actually I want to believe and I'm stirred to believe and I'm challenged to believe that actually what has the next 30 years got for us here at Gateway Church? Are we believing for the gospel to go forward and see incredible things? However before we get into uh, the text I want to ask you a question this morning and it's the one which is, I want you just to keep thinking about as we go through what we're talking this morning has being with Jesus made an impact on your life. I don't know how, how long each of you have been a Christian. Maybe maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe it's 50, 60 years. Basically the whole of the life that you remember you've been a Christian. Maybe maybe it's shorter than that. Maybe it's 30 years, 10 years, maybe maybe even shorter still, 5 years. Maybe you've only been a Christian a year or so, or even a few weeks. Or maybe today is the day where you decide to follow Jesus for the first time. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. But it's true, isn't it, that the, the people we spend time with have an impact on our life. The things we do and the people we spend have impact on us. If you have someone at work or at home who's an incredibly negative person, whose glass is always half empty, that just kind of starts to rub off on you. You start to see the negatives in situations. You don't, you don't approach life with a sense of optimism, but instead kind of have a pessimistic outlook. Or maybe you spend time with that person who, when they walk into the room, they're just the, kind of, uh, the force which lights up the room. Everyone gravitates to them. They've got an in- infectious personality. And if you, if you spend time with those people, it starts to rub off on you. It starts to make a difference in your life. In fact, it's true with uh, the stuff we consume as well. It's true with food. Stuff we, has an impact on us. It's true with the media we, we consume. If we, if we spend too much time reading the wrong things or watching the wrong things, it starts to have an impact on our lives. I know for the, the children I come across at school, that I can clearly see the impact of the things they watch and they consume having an impact on their lives. In fact, some of my children, I would go as far to say, is they just don't know how to do life because they spend their whole time with headphones on, um, a microphone, and communicating purely over social media or over internet games. And I guess what I'm asking is this, for those of us who are believers here, has what you have known and experienced of Jesus had an impact on the direction and trajectory of your life and how you live it? Now this morning we're going to be looking at three different encounters that Peter and John had in Acts 3 and 4. And they're all linked together. We're going to read quite a large portion of text. And I want us to learn a number of things from them about watching how Jesus has an impact on our lives. So we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3, page 1094 says this. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and his ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We'll pause there. Three things to help us gain some context in this story. Firstly, the beggar would have been known to the people of Jerusalem. He would have been there every day. Three times a day, the Jewish people would have walked up to the temple courts and would have gone in. And every time they walked up, he was lifted out by his friends and he would have been there. In fact, it's almost probable that Peter and John had walked past him many times before. So firstly, he was known. Secondly, this man relied on the generosity of others for his mere existence. He had no way to earn money. He had no way to look after himself. There was no kind of uh, benefits or state provision for him. He would have relied on people like Peter and John walking past them, and he was begging them for money to ensure his mere existence. In fact, without the generosity of people, he had almost certainly ceased to exist. And thirdly, he was strategically positions when i lived in winchester uh, along the main high street there's a statue called, called the buttercross and by the buttercross was a little narrow archway and it was a kind of it was a conduit between the main high street in winchester and the kind of the grounds of a cathedral and it was a really it's a really busy place people are going through there all the time and you could never really walk through there without there being A homeless person sat on the floor begging for money because that's a strategic position to be because people can't avoid you there's not much room to get around them and they're there in this busy place and it's the same of our our beggar in the story here in Jerusalem the stairs would have narrowed towards this gate and he was in a strategic position to catch the busy crowds going in of in and out of the temple three times a day so when Peter and John are about to pass by, the beggar does what he does every day, and to every person he's walking past, he asks them for money. Do you have any gold? Do you have anything for me? And what do Peter and John do? They do the very thing that I, shamefully in my sin, do myself, don't do. They've looked right at him. I know in my heart. Actually, I try to avoid sometimes these people. It's just our natural tendency. We want to avoid eye contact. And the th- first thing that Peter and John do is they fix their eyes on this man after that they say look at us look at us he calls them to look at them and at this point the beggar must have been expectant not only has Peter and John looked at them he's been asked to look at them as well and there's this kind of connection happening and he's thinking right today is payday of course, he would have known that in, in recent days, just in the previous chapter, we learned that the believers were selling all of their possessions and giving their money to the poor. So he'd have, he'd have probably known about these things happening. And then Peter speaks to him, silver and gold, I don't have. You're not use to me. It's what I need. But everything I have, I give to you. I'm not entirely sure what I would be thinking if I was the beggar at that moment in his shoes, locked eye to eye with Peter and John. Everything that he believed that he needed was cash to ensure that he could eat and survive. That's what he believed that he needed. Yet everything that Peter and John gave to him was so much bigger than anything that he could possibly dream of or imagine. Peter reaches down to this man, he takes him by the hand, and he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Whoa, what an incredible thing. He gave this man his, his feeling back, his movement back, his ability to walk back, but actually, it was so much bigger than just physical healing. It was so much bigger, bigger than just his, his hands and his, his feet being restored. It was a, a means to work. The man could now go out and earn his own money the man could now go and enter the temple courts on his own. He was, he was released from the daily humiliation of having to sit in, in front of his gate, in front of hundreds and thousands of people as they walked past. He was released from that humiliation. Everything that Peter and John gave him was release. They gave him everything. They had so this man, he jumps up, he leaps up, he walks, and he celebrates in this incredible salvation. Aren't we all poor, spiritually speaking? We're just actually, we're just like the lame man, we are carried out on a stretcher, we don't really know what we need, but when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And we respond to the call to look at him, just like the beggar was called to look at Peter and John. By the grace of God, we too are lifted out of our physical affliction and our sin, which has dogged us for our whole lives and given a future. We are given an inheritance, and we are given a means and a purpose to live. Jesus Christ has given us everything. So let's respond like the beggar. Let's jump up. Let's rejoice at the miracle of work of salvation in us. You know, from the moment you first gave your life to Jesus, maybe it was just a few weeks ago, maybe it was 60 years ago, we still need to rejoice daily in the miracle of salvation. That was a miracle that you were taken from death and into life. It's fair to say that um, encounter number one was... Certainly an incredible encounter. It's not one that this beggar would have seen coming, but it kind of sets the ball rolling for encounters number two and three. Let's pick up in chapter three and look at how the onlookers, the people in Jerusalem, respond to this incredible healing. Verse 11 says this, While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah whom he, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes. For God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who had spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets of the covenant of God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people all the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, He sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. I think it'd be um Th- fair to say that most humans are naturally inquisitive, perhaps uh, borderline nosy. I know that um, uh, on, on our playground, when something controversial happens or something which isn't quite, doesn't quite, everyone quite knows, what happens is all the children rush towards that. Maybe it's a, a little fight on the playground, a little scuffle, or a little disagreement, or, or someone's broken up. All the children gather around. I know that when the alarm of my next door neighbor's car was going off at 11 o'clock at night, I'm there at the curtain just peering out going oh I wonder what's going on has he been broken into has has he got some at a fault is he going to shut that thing up we just we we're just naturally inquisitive people aren't we and um so when the people hear of the miracle that Peter and John have, have performed to this man they, they rush after him and eventually they they, they catch up to him with a, a place called Solomon's colonnade it would have been a colonnade it would've been a beautiful place it had kind of lots of pillars and arches and they all gather around him and isn't it interesting how Peter opens up his second encounter he says this why why does this surprise you He says, why are you astonished by this? And I think it's helpful just to kind of get two things in our minds as we understand why Peter started there. Firstly, he was talking to Jewish people. He was talking to the people who had lived with and seen God's promises at work over and over again. And he just says to them, why does this surprise you? You've seen God's hand at work, and you know it to be true. But why does this surprise you? Secondly, these these people would have known about Jesus. They'd have perhaps seen Jesus, met him. In fact, they'd have known that the things Jesus were doing weren't too dissimilar to the things that Peter and John were doing in this passage. In fact, some of the last miracles that Jesus did were this very same kind of similar thing. They went to a guy called Bartimaeus, and he restored his hearing, his sight, sorry. They went to, wrong, wrong miracle, they went to... They they went to, I was thinking about the next one, when Jesus comes and he restores the guy's ear, which had been chopped off in that garden. Or or even Lazarus, who was dead, they knew that Jesus had raised him from the dead. So Peter asks, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at at us as if it's been done by our own power? And what he's doing is he's addressing their skepticism, their disbelief their ignorance, and he's going to use this opportunity to point this miracle, this healing, to actually Jesus, who is the one in whom all salvation is found. i got two children, Bethia, who's just turned three, and Joshua, who's about five months old, and one of the things I'm becoming really aware of is it's, it's too easy to forget the, the moments you treasure, those, those moments quickly fade in your memory. Like, one of my favorite memories of Bethany is when I was, used to be getting her dressed and she was just learning to, to talk. Every time you put her trousers on and her feet appeared out the bottom of her trousers, she would go, boo, toes, as if she was scaring her toes. I, I, I love that. But, or that moment when she, she first, she'd been in a hip harness, her legs had been splayed out for like five months. The, that moment when she first turned over and rolled over herself and the joy which filled her heart, do you know... Those are moments I want to treasure and not forget. And yet I know that for those two memories I have, 10 of them have probably been forgotten. It's too easy to forget. And I think for the Jews here, they were blinded by what they had seen of Jesus, but now by the power of the Holy Spirit at work on earth, we're starting to get to grips with it. For us as believers here, it's too easy for the miracle of salvation work in us daily to be forgotten. Too quickly we forget the miracle that Jesus has taken us from death to life. Too quickly we forget that in this very building we've witnessed healings, that p- people have had physical afflictions and people have been healed, we forget them. Because actually that's our natural tendency. So what do the apostles do? How do they, how do they address this Jewish crowd who would have seen Jesus, but now maybe their eyes are starting to open. They do this. They preach. They, and they preach a sermon which is like all sermons should be. It is Christ-centered. It is one all about Jesus. And why do they do that? They do that because the whole Bible, everything we see contained in this book, ultimately points to Jesus. All the other miracles and signs and wonders of the growing church in Jerusalem and the things that they're seeing happen are not as a result of a new God. They're not as a result of a a new technique that the apostles are kind of employing or, or their own skill. They find their source in the God of the Old Testament as well. And they're now being revealed in Jesus. Peter is saying that the scriptures point to these moments where God came to bless all nations and bring all peoples to him. The promises of the old are being revealed. All the prophets, they love to quote, kind of speak about Jesus. All the sacrifices fulfilled by the Lamb of God on the cross. All the law fulfilled by Jesus' obedience. All the judgment passages fulfilled by Jesus receiving the punishment that we deserve. All the promises of new life fulfilled by Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's not forget the salvation that we have in Jesus. Yeah, as I was preparing this sermon, it was the first words of this section which struck home to me, which was the response and actions of the beggar. What does he do? just says quite simply there, he held on. He held on. He wasn't, he wasn't letting go. It would have been normal at that point. He'd been healed. He'd been jumping up and down. He'd been running for joy for him to maybe to, to go off into the background or to, to find his space in the crowd. But no, the thing that he did was he held on to Peter and John. He wasn't prepared to let go of the people who would brought him through to salvation. And whether you got hold of Jesus 50 years ago, Or today's the day where you get hold of Jesus for the first time. The message is the same. Jesus is our firm foundation. He is the solid ground in which we put our our hope. He is the one in whom our inheritance is guaranteed. And if we've got hold of Jesus, don't let him go. Don't let him go. Encounter number two was with our onlookers, the, the Jewish people in and around. Now, encounter number three is a little bit more hostile. Peter and John, when we pick up in verse 7, they've already spent a night in prison at this stage, arrested by the Sanhedrin, like the, the council, of the courtroom in that town. And we pick up in verse 7 of chapter It says this: They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers and elders of the people, if you are, if I, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness to a man who is lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this." You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which, by which we must be saved. Peter and John is addressing two groups of people primarily here. Firstly, that had been the priests of the temple. Now, these were a a kind of twisted and jealous bunch. They were threatened by what was going on, and they were worried that their position in the temple was going to be destroyed, and they they were kind of protecting themselves. So they had Peter and John brought in. And secondly, there were the Sadducees. And we've got a couple of references to the Sadducees in the gospel. And and every time they come up, these are the the, kind of an an elite, elite Jewish sect who were vehemently denying the resurrection of Jesus. It didn't happen. It never occurred. Jesus is still dead. And as we begin this encounter, it's maybe Peter and John have got the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. In Luke 12, he said, but before all of this, they will seize you and they will persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before the kings and governors on the account of my name. It's happening. The things that Jesus said was going to happen to them are beginning to happen. So Peter begins his defense before the Sanhedrin by first reframing the question that they asked him. They said, by what power do you do this And Peter wasn't happy with that. What they call this, Peter says, is an act of kindness. Peter wants to draw this away from something that he has done, but instead... Focus the healing of this man as an act of salvation. And the second thing he does is he chooses his words carefully. If we were to to kind of unpick what was going on in verse 8 and read the original writing, the word used for healing there could quite happily be translated, quite easily be translated, salvation. So where it says, and being asked about how he was healed, it could quite easily read about being asked about how he was being saved. Why is this significant? The priests, they were the builders of a church. They chose to reject Jesus. And Peter is taking this miracle of healing and saying this is more than just a healing of one man. This is about the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. The, The priests had looked at Jesus, they'd assessed his merits, they'd worked out who he was and they had chosen to reject him. Yet the boy from Nazareth... Jesus Christ becomes the cornerstone. He has been exalted to the highest place, and in him all things hold together. He is the centerpiece, and all of creation looks to him. In Jesus alone, salvation is found, and from him all mercies flow. The cornerstone is is quite simply that one right there, sometimes called the capstone, if, if you were building an arch, you'd build it around a frame, and you'd place all your stones there, and you'd put in your, your cornerstone, your capstone, and it would sit there, and all the other stones in there would lean on it. Without it, they would just crumble in on themselves. And Peter and John make this kind of radical assertion that all salvation, that all of history, that all hope is about this boy, Jesus Christ, who lived and grew up and died, bled on a cross, who had done no wrong so that we could be saved. This is more than just an encounter of healing. This is an encounter of salvation. Maybe, maybe you're sat here this morning, and you've never crossed that line of faith. You've never chosen to believe in Jesus. Well, today might be your day. Today might be the day when you, you first examine Jesus Christ, the rock, and you, instead of choosing to reject him like the priest did, you choose To accept him. And when you make that commitment to follow Jesus, what you are saying is every different part of my life which I have, which it all centers around this person, Jesus Christ, I'm choosing to reorientate the way I do things, and instead of putting me at the center and my needs and my hopes and dreams, I instead choose to accept Jesus and put him at the center. Because in him, everything holds together. Brother Yun says this, he says, The true church is not an organization controlled by the rules of men, but a holy collection of living stones, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And our, our three encounters continue, and Peter and John continue their defense in verse 13. Let's read the end of this part together, and then we'll wrap up. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the the, the, the man who had been healed was standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred. They chatted. They talked about it. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer in his name. So they called Peter, called them out again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, what is right in God's eyes to listen to you? or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Against the backdrop of religious pluralism going on at the time, against the fear of the priests losing their, their rightful place in the temple, or the Sadducees denying Jesus Christ, or even this incredible healing that happened what is the one central conclusion that the Sanhedrin, the council of the time, come up with is that this. Peter and John had been with Jesus, and it had an impact on their lives. They'd walked with him. They'd witnessed his companionship. They'd traveled with him. They'd shared meals with him. They'd laughed with him. They'd cried with him, and they'd watched him bleed and die on the cross, and they'd seen him raised from the dead. They had recognized him as Savior, and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in, in them, they were doing everything that Jesus had called them to do. And as I started this morning, I asked you a question. Has being with Jesus impacted you? And I have no, no doubt in my mind that for most believers in this room, I would hasten to add for all believers in this room, Being with Jesus has had an impact on our lives. But wouldn't it be incredible, wouldn't it be unbelievable that when people look at us, like the the Sanhedrin looked at Peter and John, that the one thing that characterizes us, that the one thing that sets us apart is that people look at us and go, man, these guys, Gateway Church, these guys, they must have been with Jesus. You know, we don't come to church to, to have a cool Sunday morning We don't come to church to learn how to set our moral barometer. We don't come to church to learn how to be hospitable, or to be charitable, or to give our money away. We want our unique selling point. The thing that sets us apart from everyone else is that people look at us and they say, man, these guys must have been with Jesus. We all have a story to tell. And I know that the book of Acts personally speaks to me about for 30 years. I believe I've got two more lots of 30 years left in me, and I, and I want to trust that God's going to use me and this church for, for things we see happening in Acts all over again. And it speaks to me, and it challenges me. And I can only do that if I spend time with Jesus. You can only see it happen if you spend time with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. So how do we do that? Three simple things that we saw happen through this text. Firstly, we fix our eyes on Jesus. The, the beggar, he fixed his eyes on Peter and John, and Peter and John commanded him to look at them. look at them. And I think Jesus is saying the same to us. He's saying, hey, come and fix your eyes on me this morning. Look up at me. And there's a number of practical ways we can do that. We can do it in the way we approach worship. We can do that saying, God, I'm going to give you everything in this worship time coming up. I'm going to fix my eyes on you. I'm going to make my life about worship. We can pick up our Bible and we can read it, because in there is, is truth about Jesus. We spend time with Jesus when we get stuck into our words. Maybe it's about our pattern of thankfulness. Maybe you're not thankful for all the blessings that Jesus has. So maybe you need to develop that pattern of thankfulness in you. Maybe it's engagement in community life. Maybe you've been a little bit kind of distant from church community. Maybe God's challenging you right now to, to get stuck in in community life. Firstly, fix our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, hold on to Jesus. No matter what you're going through, whether you've been a Christian for since you can possibly remember, or whether today's your day, that you choose to follow Jesus for the first time, remember his promises. Remember that the work of salvation in you is a miracle, that you were brought from death and brought into life. But I'm aware that some people here will feel that Jesus has let go of them, that actually you've got this this ran the wrong way, but you feel that Jesus has let go of you. This is not true. Jesus is bending down right now, and by his spirit, he's saying, come with me, stand up. I am not letting go of you. I have given everything for you, and he's still calling you in. And finally, maybe it's that you need to make Jesus your capstone. Maybe you've had something else at the top. And the problem with putting something else at the top is it's, it's not as strong as Jesus. It's not as true as Jesus. It's not as perfect as Jesus. It's the only thing which can be the capstone. And maybe you need today to decide, actually, I need to, I need to rebuild this. I need to get rid of that idol. I need to get rid of it. And I need to choose instead to make Jesus the cornerstone. Maybe it's, it's your first time. and you know what? We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to say if this is challenged you, and you say, "Actually, I've, I want to respond to Jesus for the first time. I want to say for the first time ever that Jesus is my Savior and I trust in Him." You need to come and find me, or Rich, or one of the other leaders after the service. We want to, to to guide you through doing that. The Sanhedrin knew that they were there were very few options left to them at this point. They didn't. They couldn't deny that this man had been healed. They couldn't, and, and so they bring Peter and John before them in this. Area and they say, we command you not to speak about Jesus. And as I end, I want verse 20 to be our prayer for us as individuals, but also us, us as a body of believers commissioned to do the book of Acts again here in Paul and Bournemouth. It says this, as for us, as for Gateway Church, as for me, insert your name, as for, we cannot help speaking About what we've seen and heard. Cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Let's pray. Why don't we stand, actually? Let's stand and pray together. Let the Holy Spirit just begin to open your eyes and hearts to all that God's speaking to you, thinking about where you need to respond. Father, I, I thank you for these three incredible counter, encounters where Peter and John firstly healed a broken man. Lord, I thank you that that's your, your message, that you come into this world to heal broken men. But it was more than just a physical healing. This is a message of salvation. And Lord, we, we rejoice. We stand here this, this morning and we, we leap up and say, God, thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that we are no longer dead, but are found alive in you, and you have given everything for us. Lord, we don't want to lose sight of that. We don't want to let it go. We want to choose in this moment to fix our eyes on you, as you call us to gaze up at you. Lord, I pray for those here who have, for whatever reason, let go of you, who have walked away. Lord, I pray that you draw them back right now, Lord I pray that in this moment they choose to to accept your outstretched arm to hold on to you. Lord I pray for us who's had a life round the wrong way, whose capstone whose cornerstone has been something other than what it should have been. Lord, I pray that you would you would help us reorientate our lives now as we worship that we would choose to put you first above all things. And by the power of your spirit, you would strip away our idols, strip away the things we've chosen to put our trust in. And instead, in this moment, we would choose to trust you. And for those of us here who've never trusted in Jesus, why not you, in this moment, ask, Jesus, are you my rock of offense who I'm going to discard? Or are you my cornerstone? Father, I I pray by your spirit right now you would start to open up our hearts. And as we worship, would you reveal your majesty and your glory and your wonder so that we can gaze upon your incredible face and see all the mercies that you have for us when you poured out everything of Jesus Christ so that we could just be in your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship, let's respond, let's be open to what God's going to say to us. There might be words, there might be pictures, we've got a mic here ready for you. Come and see Rich and say, is this appropriate for this time? And there might be times that we have to come pray. It might be that even in this next song, you come and find someone up in front of you Say, just can you just pray for me because I've got stuff to sort out from what you've said. Let's worship.